Well, good evening, everyone. And, uh, and welcome. Please keep your Bibles open at, uh, at Colossians chapter 3. That's the passage we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, and why don't, we, um, why don't we pray for ourselves? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to be able to meet together with your people. It's a privilege to be able to hear your word being read. A word that you have spoken to us given to us so that we might be encouraged and refreshed and strengthened and trained and sometimes even rebuked. A word in which you reveal yourself to us, but on top of that you reveal ourselves to us so that in the study of it we may know more of you and more of ourselves. And so we thank you for this great privilege which is ours to sit together tonight and to reflect upon this portion of the Bible. We pray that we would not be like that person who looks in a mirror and goes away and forgets what they look like. But as we read your word, may we store it up in our hearts and minds that we might not sin against you. May we be men and women who sit under your word. And may your Holy Spirit take that word and apply it like seed sown in fertile soil. Apply it in our hearts and minds. Transform us, we pray that we might indeed be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago I got a phone call from our bank. Uh, neither Pauline nor I have enough money to make the bank want to ring us all that often, but they were ringing because they were worried about uh, someone stealing my identity. They asked me if I'd purchased takeaway pizza from Domino's in a city in the United States of America. And uh, as I was in Sydney at the time, I said, no, that's highly unlikely. And over the next two or three minutes, I had this bizarre conversation with the lady from the bank as we were speaking, and she was telling me, oh, there's another purchase, oh, there's another purchase. And eventually I started getting panicky and thinking, just close the card down, stop telling me about other purchases. And then eventually she said, oh, fine, we blocked the card. Now, the bank repaid us the amount of money that had been spent, and the amounts themselves weren't large. And so I guess the identity theft on the scale of things was not a particularly significant matter. But I still found it a little disconcerting that somebody else had been pretending to be me, doing things in my name that I would never dream of. Pauline and I never buy from Domino's. It's just not what we do. We are not Domino pizza people. We Italian specialist restaurant, maybe we might get a pizza, but we'd never buy from fast food. It felt like a compromise in some ways of our standards because our identity is important to us. And I want to be who I am and I don't want other people to pretend to be something that I'm not. I think that's why Alzheimer's disease is such a dreadful thing. This whole sad deterioration as we forget who we are. Um, my dear mum, uh, in the year or so before she died, uh, lost much idea of who she was. Sometimes it would make us laugh and that was almost a, a relief at times. I remember driving in the car one afternoon with her and she turned to me and she said, who's the lady in the back seat? And I said, oh, I said, um, that's, that's my wife Pauline. And she said, oh, she said, I didn't know you were married, Stuart. And I said, yes, Mum. I said, we've been married at that stage nearly 35 years. And she said, oh, well, I'm sure you'd have told me eventually. 
And uh, it, it was nice to be able to laugh because most of the time it just made us cry as we watched this woman whom we loved just gradually drift away and no longer become or be the person that she had always been. Because our identity matters. Who we are, uh, knowing who we are, shapes how we live. And it shapes the way that we view the world, the way that we view others, the way we relate to others. Now the Apostle Paul's been writing to the church of the Colossians and through them, of course, he's writing to us as well and he's been reminding the church of its true identity. They're running the risk of what you might call spiritual amnesia, of forgetting who they are of forgetting their identity now that they have been transformed, renewed, born again, a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their risk, it would appear, is that they are going to forget who it is that they are. And with that loss of identity, with that loss of sense of who they are before God, will necessarily come a loss of focus on how they should live. And so the Apostle's writing to them to remind them of who they are and to remind us of who we are from the day that we first came by faith in Christ, we first came into the kingdom of God and were reconciled to him. The Apostle wants to remind the the, the church in Colossae that this is who they are and therefore this is how they should live. So if you have a look in your Bibles and just turn back a page or two, Colossians chapter 1, we find that they are at risk of losing their identity because they were forgetting who it was that they believed in. They are at risk of losing their identity because they were forgetting who it was that they had believed in. And so right through chapter 1, the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes him as the Lord of creation the head over the church, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And he's reminding them that because they are in Christ, who is the fullness of God, that they, the Colossian believers, therefore have fullness because they are in Christ. Once they were alienated by sin, now they've been reconciled by Christ's death. And so he tells them in chapter 1 that, that, they, that they are without blemish, that they are free from accusation, thanks to the glorious riches of Christ which have been lavished upon them as believers in Christ. Because they're at risk, they're in danger of forgetting who they are and of this glorious inheritance which is theirs because God in Christ has drawn near to them. But in chapter 2, they're at risk of losing their identity, not by forgetting who they have believed in, that's chapter 1, but rather by forgetting what it is that they believe. And so they're at risk, it would seem, of embracing a different message to the one that they had first believed. A message that relied upon their religious observance, their mystical experience, their harsh treatment of the body. And so notice in chapter 2, verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rather than relying on the grace that has been given to them in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Colossian believers are at risk of forgetting who they are by forgetting what they have believed, by beginning to put their confidence not in Christ and in Christ's work, but putting their confidence in themselves and in their work, in the observance of man-made rules, rules that have an appearance of self-imposed worship, that appear to be really holy and godly because they involve harsh treatment of the body and they appear to be a life full of self-denial, but the apostle says all that they are is a confidence in yourself. And they have no use whatsoever in reconciling you to God. So remember who you are, says the Apostle. Don't forget your identity in Christ. Freely forgiven, children of the Lord of the creation, members of the church over which Christ is the head, reconciled to God and reconciled to each other solely by the work of the Lord Jesus, which you receive by faith. Remember who you are. Because your identity shapes your behaviour. And so chapter 3 opens with the Apostle saying, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. So if all of this is true, if indeed you've died with Christ and now been raised with Christ, if you've been reconciled to God, if you're a Christian believer, then set your hearts on things above. Do you see that? Who you are since you've been raised with Christ determines your behaviour. Now set your minds on things above. Set your minds, he says it again, on things above, verse 2, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and you will appear with him also. Let me ask you a question. If you wanted to turn out a generation of legalistic moralizers in the church... If that was your goal, how would you go about doing it? If you wanted to create an entire generation of legalistic moralizers as the church, what would you do? How do you create a generation of men and women who adhere to a strict set of rigid rules for Christian living, but they adhere to them without any passion, without any fire, without any life, A generation who, because of that, will pass on to the next generation absolutely nothing because they have nothing to give. How do you do that? Now, that's an odd question to ask. I hope none of you are sitting there planning how you might do that. But if you are, I'm going to tell you. Teach them Christian living without teaching them the Christian gospel. That's how to do it. Teach them how a Christian is meant to live, but unbolt it from the reason why a Christian should live that way. Teach them what to do, but not why they must do it. Teach them how to live without grounding it in their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, who they are. That's why Paul always grounds his ethical commands in the fertile soil of the gospel. Why our best antidote to temptation and sin is to preach the gospel to ourselves. 
why the commands for Christian living only make sense and they only have power when they are rooted deeply in the identity that you and I have as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, as men and women who have been saved by faith alone in Christ alone, as men and women who, knowing that they are sinful, have had their sins washed away, not by the good works that we have done, but solely by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so what Paul does here for the Colossians is to remind them of who they are in order that they might understand how they must now live. And he reminds them in chapter 3 of two great events. Two events in history that have created their identity as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, he reminds them that they are dead. He says, you have died in Christ. That's what's happened to you. Go back to chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 20. See how he begins it. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. And then over in chapter 3, verse 3, he f- comes back to that theme. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You have died with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he took to the cross your sin and mine. God made him who had no sin become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so those who are united with Christ through faith, we have died with him. Died to living to ourselves. Died to the need, as Paul says in chapter 2, to obey man-made, woman-made rules. Do not taste, do not touch. Died, the apostle says, to earthly things in chapter 3 verse 2. Now by earthly things, he doesn't mean that we've died to taking an interest in the good gifts of God in creation. What he's talking about are those things which are opposed to God, not heavenly things. That is to say, sin. You died with Christ, he says. Therefore, you have died to sin. We no longer live for it. It no longer matters to us. We have died to sin, died to the earthly nature, died to the earthly things because we have died with Christ. When our first child, um, we've got three kids, they're growing up now, but when our first child began school as a five-year-old, Pauline and I embraced everything about the school experience. Uh, We were, um, depending on, I suspect, the teacher's perspective, either the parents from heaven or the parents from hell, I don't know, but we were the ones who were really involved in the school. We went to P&C meetings. I helped run the infants' chess club, made sure I only ever played kids in kindergarten and first class. I wasn't so sure I could beat the ones in second class. We threw ourselves into the entire experience, sports carnivals, uh, all sorts of year, back to year seven nights, all sorts of things, for the next 18 years as our three children moved from infants through primary through high school. When our youngest left high school, so did we. We'd never been back. Got no interest in going back, have no desire to go back. We've never gone to a PNC meeting, never been to a sports day. We've left the whole lot behind. It no longer occupies our thoughts or our hearts or our minds or our interests. Why? Because we've died to it. We're no longer interested in it. Those things that previously occupied your thinking, says the Apostle, no longer. 
You have died with Christ, so you have died to them. The things that still preoccupy those who have no Christ. That worship of career or the worship of wealth or the worship of possessions. The worship of lifestyle and the accumulation of experiences. The worship of comfort or of reputation or of pleasure. The living of self-centred, self-preoccupied lives. Paul says you died to such earthly things. Since then you have died with Christ. Now, he says, chapter 3, verse 1, you have not only died with Christ, but you have been raised with Christ. The second great event in history. Not only have you died when Christ died, but you have been raised to life just as Christ was raised. Born again, a new creation, you have eternal life. That's how the scriptures describe the new believer. A whole new creation because you have been raised in the Lord Jesus. Where he goes, you go because you are united with Christ in his death. So you have been raised with him in his resurrection. It's who you are. You're dead and alive all at the same time. Your new identity. And so Paul says, because you've been raised with Christ, therefore set your hearts on things above. Set your heart on the things of God. Set your minds, he says, on things above. Set your minds on the things of God. In other words, be who you are. As a disciple of Christ, be the person that you are. I wonder if you've ever met someone who is married but lives like they're single. Have you ever come across someone like that? It's never a particularly attractive sight, but from time to time I've met folk like that. They've made the vows, they've signed the forms, they've been through the ceremony. They claim all the benefits of, of marriage when it suits them, but... I've seen them. They still flirt with the girls. They still go gaming with the boys. They neglect their their wife. They neglect their children. They act as though they are living still as single men. They need to set their heart and their mind on their wife and their families. Not be focused on what they once were, but rather be focused on who they now are. And so Paul is saying the same thing to the church in Colossae and to us. Be who you are. You've died with Christ, so have nothing to do with earthly things, sin. You've been raised with Christ, so set your hearts and minds on heavenly things, that is, obedience to the character and the will of Christ. And then he goes on in verses 5 through to 14 to unpack exactly what that looks like. So in verses 5 to 11, he says, therefore, notice that, verse 5, put to death, therefore. So this is the dying with Christ part. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then again in verses 12 to 17, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion and patience and kindness and humility and the things of God. Let your identity shape your behaviour. Firstly then, you died with Christ, so therefore, in verse 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He has a, um, a set of, of five, five behaviours listed there, doesn't he? And then down uh, in verse 8, he's got another set of six. So 11 things in all. 
that we are meant to die to. What they have hold in common is that they are all of them unrestrainedly self-centred. And Paul is saying, put to death such unrestrained self-centredness and each of them are unrestrainedly lacking in love. It's interesting, isn't it? The book ends of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? Fruit of the Spirit begins with love and it ends with self-control. I think there's a reason for that because everything in between is an outworking of love and self-control. So the first five, verse five, put to death whatever belongs to you in earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Even greed, I think, in this context is probably greed for sexual experiences. Giving free rein to your impulses, he says, put it to death. Having no regard to whatever pain or hurt you might cause others, put it to death. Depersonalising people by making them an object of lust, put it to death. Using someone for your own pleasure without regard for their welfare, put it to death. Our sinful natures can always find an excuse to justify what cannot be justified. The second list in verse 8, really much the same, but the focus this time is on giving free reign to our anger. Anger, put it to death. Rage, put it to death. Malice, put it to death. Slander, put it to death. Filthy language, put it to death. Lying, put it to death. Don't just let it rip because you feel like it. It's not how the follower of Christ lives. You put to death that way of thinking. It lacks self-control and it lacks love. You have died to such things, says Paul, so no longer live for them. And in its place, notice what he says in verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, as those who have been raised with Christ, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Clothe yourselves in the character of God. I think clothes that we wear say a great deal about who we are, whether it's our occupation, so tradies will wear a fluoro shirt, power dressing lawyers dress all the same, a uniform marks out a nurse or a member of the military. We can tell quite quickly, can't we, between an inner city hipster in skinny jeans and black fingernails and someone who perhaps is from Cronulla and wears boardies and bikinis or normcore fashion setters like myself. Clothing is a way of distinguishing ourselves from one another. We can tell someone's hobbies and interests They're a guide to the kind of person that they are. I've noticed around college from time to time one of the guys, one of the single guys, will start dressing quite differently. Uh, Rather than Uggs and baggy jeans and a stretched brown T-shirt that used to be white, they just disappear miraculously overnight. He arrives at lectures now wearing designer jeans, a shirt with real buttons that looks like it's been ironed a stylish jumper that matches the rest of his wardrobe and shoes that look like they may have been polished. 
All of it indicates a radical change in something. And every time I see it happen, I look at them and I think, I know what's happened to you. You've met a girl. And every time I'm right, every single time. See, it's a whole new relationship, a reorientation. And it's reflected in the way in which they clothe themselves. Paul uses that image. He says there has been such a radical reorientation in you from the moment you met the Lord Jesus Christ. So clothe yourself now in a whole new wardrobe. You've got to step out and look radically different. From the day you came to Christ, those around you, when they see you the next day, ought to be able to look at you and say, my goodness, something's happened to you. No, I haven't met someone. I've met Christ. And now I look completely different. And so he lists a number of the, the, the clothings that we're going to wear. Put on compassion, he says. Put on kindness. It's an interesting word, isn't it? We don't talk about kindness in the Christian church that much. Have you noticed that? Very rarely do I hear people talk about kindness. He's a very kind man. She's a kind woman. Sort of seems a little bit anemic, doesn't it? To say that someone's kind. It's like calling them nice. But this is the word that Paul uses, the same word to use a wine to describe a wine that has mellowed with age. There's something full-bodied and warm and gentle about it. Clothe yourself with kindness. Clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with gentleness. As we look for a new minister in our congregation, what kind of, of, of men are we looking for? We're looking for a leader, aren't we? So what kind of leader are we looking for? Are we looking for a leader who is clothed in gentleness? Who is strong enough to stand up for us, strong enough to stand up to error, firm enough to resist the evil one, but with a gentle strength, not brute force. Patience. Bearing with one another. One of the things when I was a pastor that... um, Whenever people in the church um, from time to time would aggravate me and I'd get so frustrated with them. And uh, Pauline would always, would always say to me, say, Stuart, you must remember this. God was doing a work in them before they ever met you. God is doing a work in them now that they know you. And God will continue to do a work in them long after you are gone. So bear with them because they're a work in progress just as you are. It's true, isn't it? Bear with one another. We're not finished products. We're not where we are going to be. We are on that way. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Christ has freely forgiven you. Do you freely forgive others? Do you notice the contrast between the previous list, the things we had to put to death? Whereas they were characterised by a lack of self-control and a lack of love, all of these things they're characterised by the opposite, by a genuine love and by a deep-seated, concerted self-control. Forbearing, forgiving, kindness, gentleness, love. These things don't come naturally to us. It takes love and self-control and the transforming work of God's Spirit 
because things can never be the same for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have died with Christ and now been raised with Christ, we are both dead and alive. We've put to death the earthly things and we have clothed ourselves now as we set our hearts and minds on the things above, we are clothed in the things of heaven. Be who you are, both dead and alive. Pauline gave me an article a couple of weeks ago uh, which reported that in Romania, in one of the courts there, um, uh, in 1992, a man had left his wife to go and work in Turkey. So a couple living in Romania, he'd moved to, to Turkey for work and uh, that was the last his wife heard of him. He just disappeared off the face of the planet. Finally, 20-odd, 25 years later, she went to a court in Romania in 2016 to ask that the man, her husband, be declared officially dead. She'd not heard a sound from him for 24 years. So the court declared him dead. Just a couple of weeks ago, the man who had been declared dead turned up in court and he asked the court if they would repeal the death notice and the court refused. They said, you are dead and you will remain dead, notwithstanding that you are here standing in court before us. Now, I used to be a lawyer. I understand those kinds of... Uh, it sounds in, inconceivable and it sounds a little bit awkward, but I can understand how the law would come up with that. Afterwards, as he left the court, the man said, my name is Constantine Reliu. I am dead, but I am still alive. And I thought, isn't that a wonderful description of a Christian man or woman? I am dead, but I am still alive. I have died with Christ to the earthly nature, to the things of the flesh, to those things which are hostile to God, and I am alive, raised with Christ, so that I set my heart and my mind on the things above. So let me close by just asking you, how clear is your identity? If anyone were to commit an act of identity theft on you, would people notice? How has your identity been shaped by who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it clear at church, at work, in, at home, in your families, and the people that you live with? Is it clear that since you have died with Christ, therefore you have put to death the earthly nature? Is it clear that since you have been raised with Christ, your heart and your mind is now fixed on the things above? Do people, when they think of you in whatever context in your life, do they think, what a gentle man he is? What a kind woman. There's something remarkable about the way that they live, the way that they treat others, the way that they behave, the decisions that they make, the priorities they express, the way that they speak, the way they relate, their ability to forbear with others, to carry their burdens, to forgive when they're hurt. And is it a reflection of this identity that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because who we are must inevitably shape the way that we live. The day you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, from that day forth, things could never be the same again. Never be the same. Life changed completely. Because you died, 
and you rose and therefore you put to death and therefore you set your heart because Christ has made you and I radically different people in his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Father, we know it all. We've heard it all so many times. Please deliver us from settling down to such complacency that we are simply content with the sort of people that we are now and the way that we live. But spur us on, we pray. Challenge us. Provoke us. That we might hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because you have first loved us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.